0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Carl Levin is the longest serving senator in Michigan history. He represented our state in the Senate for 36 years, and now he's written a book about that time. The memoir titled Getting to the Heart of the Matter My 36 Years in the Senate takes readers from Levin's early life here in Detroit all the way up to the day he retired from public service in 2015. Senator Carl Levin joins me now to talk about it. Senator, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Well, Stephen, it's always great to be with you and to have known you all these years.
0: Yes. Let's talk about that, the, that transition you made from the Detroit city council to the U S Senate. That's an incredible, that's an incredible jump. It's something we wouldn't see happen today in politics. I don't think, but, but talk about what made you run for the U S Senate. You were the president of the Detroit city council. Uh, why did you decide that Washington was where you wanted to be?
1: Well, I had a lot, a lot of people that were urging me to run a uh, feeling that my uh, experience in government, uh, even though it was a local level, uh, would be uh, a contribution to the uh, legislative process and to the nation, hopefully. I had learned a lot of lessons on the city council, which uh, I found very, very useful in Washington. And there was a number of people who uh, thought I could uh, take those uh, lessons and uh, make a contribution, and including my wife, Barbara, and, uh, Number of other good friends,
0: and uh, when you got to uh, the Senate, uh, you you couldn't have known then how much influence you'd have over the chamber. You couldn't have known you'd stay for for 36 years. Give us, give me a sense of those early years and how you decided to kind of frame out the time that you would have in the in the U.S. Senate.
1: Well, I made uh, a couple basic decisions uh, early on in the, in the Senate. Uh, first of all, I uh, decided I would get involved in, in oversight work, investigations of the shortfalls of our society, uh, including the shortfalls of uh, uh, the uh, big banks and Wall Street, also the corporations that had been Avoiding paying taxes uh, through various kinds of gimmicks, the most profitable corporations. There's a huge tax and wealth gap in this country, and I wanted people to, in government and out of government, to be uh, held accountable and to hopefully uh, be pushed in the right direction to do some good for the for the public, for the community, not just uh, for their own pocketbooks. I also made a decision to uh, and so the the bottom line there is that there was a subcommittee that was offered to me that was an oversight subcommittee when I first got to Washington and I decided to take that offer from one of my colleagues um, instead of a couple other uh, chairmen who wanted me to join their committees but what I also wanted to do is to uh, learn something about the Military and the armed services because, uh, I had not served, uh, in uniform and I wanted to learn a lot more because the issues of, of war and peace, how we spend our dollars, how we maintain our security, uh, how we support our military, uh, where they, uh, are doing important things in terms of hopefully uh, spreading our values around the world and protecting our security. And so I wanted to learn more about the military, and so I uh, asked to join the Armed Services Committee, and I was appointed to that committee, which is uh, also a uh, kind of an unusual way for uh, many people to begin who haven't had Mm -hmm. experience in the Armed Services. So that was a couple of important decisions I made right off the bat. Mm.
0: And you've said in the past that you wanted to govern less on the whims of public opinion and more based on your own values and principles. And you would leave it to voters to decide whether to send you back to Washington or not after each after each term. They did uh, many times, but that approach to governing seems really rare, if not non-existent today. Uh, how important do you think it was to your success that you took that approach uh, and, and decided to serve the constituents in that way?
1: Well, I, I went to Washington believing that uh, people, particularly in elected office, are fiduciaries. And when it comes to voting, that people ought to listen to the various sides of an issue. Uh, they ought to not be arrogant and decide that they are going to, you know, ignore what uh, others think and what others have written about and studied, but to kind of get, uh, be aware of the pros and cons of issues. But then when it comes to voting, to do what is best for your people, whether or not it's popular. Uh, I'm not a populist. I don't uh, think that the responsible the responsibility of elected officials who vote uh, is to uh, hold their finger up to the wind and see which way is blowing or to take public opinion polls. Public opinion obviously is important, but it's more important, I think, for people who vote on issues to vote for what they believe is best for their people, even though it might be unpopular. I'm sorry, even though yeah, even though that vote might be unpopular at the time. And I, I carried that uh, belief uh, to Washington. I cast a number of very unpopular votes at the time. I voted against the Bush. Uh, t- the first I voted against the Reagan tax cut, mm-hmm. which I thought favored wealthy people. And then the uh, first Bush uh, tax cut I thought also had that same problem. And I'm willing to look at, the obviously, the tax burden that middle-income people have uh, and lower-income people have and try to reduce the burden. But I'm not willing to reduce taxes for wealthy people just to give them... A greater, uh, greater wealth than they already have. So that's, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I believe that that's the responsibility. It's, uh, what I call a fiduciary duty, uh, to, uh, represent people in that manner. And I survived a number of, uh, unpopular votes. Mm-hmm. I voted against the Iraq War, mm-hmm. which was very popular. Believe it or not, now people realize what a, a lot of people realize what a mistake it was, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with the second Bush uh, war, where he invaded essentially Iraq and took uh, <laughs> took over the country in many, many ways, and we've paid the price in a lot of ways for that decision.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you also developed a reputation as somebody who could work and did work across the aisle that you know as progressive as uh, your politics were you were able to compromise a fair amount and and be able to work with the republican colleagues right now in washington that is maybe the rarest of uh, of qualities we just don't see uh, a lot of people willing to or 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 able to do that and i wonder what you make of that political climate, what are you, what are you watching uh, in, in Washington that the rest of us are seeing and, and sort of uh, taking away from, from where our politics are at this point?
1: Yeah, well, I learned something very early when I was president of the city council in Detroit. You have to learn to work with people who have different views from yours, And if you're not willing to do that. And to compromise, to gain maybe half a loaf or three-quarters of a loaf instead of the whole thing, uh, then you're not willing to govern. You really don't believe in, in governing if you're not willing to work towards a, a goal and be uh, able to work with people who have very different views, who come from different uh, uh, political backgrounds who are different uh, racial, ec- ethnic, uh, religious groups, um, come from different religious backgrounds, in other words. You've got to do that. I, I learned to do that on the city council. Hmm. There were only uh, nine of us, but there was a lot of differences in backgrounds in those nine people. And it was a very important lesson. And it, they, I wish they'd learned it in Washington. There's just too many people starting with the Tea Party folks who came to office, and they their attitude was, uh, I didn't come here to compromise. I came here to get my views in force. Well, <laughs> uh, that's, we've seen the outcome of this. It's reached a, 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 just an absurd point now where there's some people who just simply, they want to attack the other side, they want to make speeches, about uh, the, what the, is imp- they need to accomplish. But the speeches leave no room for working with other people to achieve a common goal. And I don't care if that common goal is healthcare or education, infrastructure, uh, beating the virus that we're now plagued with. Um, whatever the goal is, there's so many common goals. That everybody just almost 95% of the public would agree with that you ought to be able to find ways to take steps towards achieving those goals Hmm. even though it's not exactly the way that you would do it if you were a dictator. Hmm.
0: Hmm. So, So I am also very curious about another debate that's taking place in the Senate right now, which is about the future of, of the filibuster. Uh, we had your nephew, Andy Levin, on the program a few weeks ago. He's a member of Congress now. Uh, and he was talking about how you and he disagree about uh, the future of the filibuster. He thinks it should go. Uh, he thinks it's, it's a, an impediment to, to, to good governing. Uh, I know as somebody who really cherishes the institution of the Senate and its traditions, you have a different view. Tell us Tell us what that is.
1: Well, first, uh, the filibuster is not the reason for the gridlock. The re- The reason for the gridlock is that the people who are putting forth a proposal, like the ones that Andy and I believe in, mm-hmm. are, uh, are pushing it. First of all, they're not going to succeed because the filibuster is not going to be ended, but that's... In a way, secondary. They're 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 saying the the words, get rid of the filibuster, but they're not willing to push the people who are threatening to filibuster to actually go out and filibuster. Force them to do it. It's hmm. inconvenient to force the the people who threaten to filibuster to just go ahead and do it. But it's it's vital. That if people threaten to filibuster, that they shouldn't just uh, get their way. They shouldn't just be say, "Okay, we won't do. We, we won't go there and try to get that done." And that's what's happened too often: is that people who simply threaten to filibuster uh, get away with it. Mm-hmm. They're not forced to filibuster. To actually, do it. Yeah. Actually, do it. And, and let me tell you the reason. And I tried this when I was there. I voted against the so-called nuclear option, which uh, violated the rules in order to uh, put in place a, a rule which would allow majority vote on judges. Look what we ended up with, a couple of Supreme Court judges mm-hmm. that never would have been confirmed by the Senate if the people who uh were pushing those judges were forced to filibuster because they did not have... Uh, sixty votes to uh, to confirm those judges so the 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 product of the way in which the filibuster was um, eliminated uh relative just to judges not to legislation, but the product was what we saw in the Supreme court so just I believe very strongly and I argued at the time, make the filibusters filibuster. Make them take weekends. Let them stand up for weeks on end. They won't do it. Put them to the test. But unless you're willing, unless you're willing to actually force people who threaten the filibuster to filibuster, then, then to simply say I want to get rid of the filibuster uh, are just hollow words. Mm. It's it's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Uh, but it's also means that you're not willing to inconvenience yourself to have to at least have one of your members who oppose the filibuster to hang around to make sure that the people who are standing up for days in a row uh, don't try to pull off uh, tricks which would uh, uh, undermine the effort to force them to filibuster. Mm. And by the way, the filibuster, the presence of that possibility is one of the only sources of compromise. Since you have to get sixty votes in order to overcome a filibuster, it has led to lots of compromises which otherwise would not take place because you gotta reach to get those sixty votes, that super majority. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. The book is Getting to the Heart of the Matter, my thirty six years in the Senate written by Michigan's longest-serving U.S. Senator, Carl Levin. Uh, Senator, it is always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Stephen, thanks for your your long service, too.
0: (laughs) Thank you.